Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Lauren Good, and you're listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. Michael Calori is out of office this week. He's playing in the snow. But I'm joined, as always, by co-host Ariel Pardes, Senior Associate Editor at Wired. Hello. Hi. This is fun. It is fun. This it's is... kind of like when your parents are out of town, and it's like just the kids <laughs> hanging out. Do you feel that way? I do feel that way, except I feel like Mike is going to hear this and say, oh, you just called me old. But yeah, it's kind of like when the parents are out of town. This is the insane taking over the asylum. Uh, this is the podcast where we take you through the top tech news of the week and we break down the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But it's really not just about gadgets. It's about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives. It's also about how technology fits into our lives. And sometimes that means you will literally fold it to fit it into your life. I say that because this week Samsung announced that it will be shipping a folding phone this spring, which is just one of the things we're going to be talking about with special guest Ina Fried from Axios, who is joining us today. Hi, Ina. Hello. I'm so excited to have you in. Ina and I go way back, which we'll talk about, but first some news updates for you. Give us some news, Lauren. All right, so it's been a pretty active week in the world of content moderation, which sounds really boring, but this impacts the kind of stuff you're seeing or maybe the kind of stuff you don't want to see on social platforms. On Thursday, The Verge reported that YouTube has deleted more than 400 YouTube channels and deleted millions of comments amid criticism that the platform's recommendation engine is allowing pedophiles to connect and link to child porn. Uh. Yep. A former YouTuber named Matt Watson called attention to this problem in a video of his own. He got back on YouTube just to post this video. And that video has been viewed millions of times. But 
it wasn't just that call out and all of the criticisms that have spurred YouTube to take action. Uh, as New York Magazine reported, advertisers, including McDonald's, Nestle, Epic Games, even Disney, have pulled their advertising money out of YouTube until the situation is investigated further. YouTube told The Verge that basically it's on it and it's trying to address the problem and that it's even working with law enforcement in some cases, but what a mess. What a mess is an understatement. Yeah. And, and this isn't the first time we've seen something like this from YouTube. Wasn't there a similar type of situation with Elsa from Frozen? I think YouTube gets stuck in this conundrum quite often where its algorithms sort of go out of control and end up surfacing the weird content that lives on YouTube. And then YouTube says, oh, we didn't mean to do this. It was the algorithms. We don't know where this came from. We're working on it. Um, but nothing ever seems to get resolved in a meaningful way. Speaking of content moderation, mm -hmm. I want to give you a happy news story or happier, happier news story <laughs> um, from the content moderation space. I don't know if um, you've seen this online lately, but people have been posting screenshots of what happened when you type in the word vaccine on platforms like YouTube and also Facebook. Um, basically what happens on those platforms is that the results autofill to things like parents against vaccination or vaccination, vaccination re-education discussion forum or other groups and uh, articles and content that has to do with um, anti-vaxxers. Um, so journalists and politicians alike, Adam Schiff, is one politician who's been really vocal about this, have been really up in arms um, since platforms like these and the algorithms that they use to surface content are stuck in this misinformation loop, um, which is not exclusive to vaccines at all, but uh, it's a sort of recent case that can be quite dangerous. So um, something cool that happened this week, or I mean, maybe cool is overstating it, but... It's all relative. Something not horrible <laughs> um, is that Pinterest, the visual inspiration platform, preemptively broke their search algorithm so that it wouldn't surface things um, related to anti-vaxxers if you search for vaccines on Pinterest. This was a story that was published first in the Wall Street Journal. Um, someone discovered this, I think, just by searching the term on Pinterest. Um, but basically what they've done is really, really simple. They've just built a blacklist of search terms that they consider polluted. Um, stuff that's always going to surface some sort of squeaky content. Um, and they've just removed functionality for those terms while they work on weeding out the bad content that's related to those terms. So it's kind of an interesting example of one way that platforms can begin to deal with these problems of content moderation, which I think YouTube and Facebook often present as just being so unwieldy and so such big magnitude and where do we even begin? And and one way is to sort of take the Pinterest approach, which is no. to say, we're just going to stop you from searching this. Are people getting around it? Are they coming up with different ha hashtags or search terms or things like that? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a ton of evidence of that yet. Um, I'm sure that's still a possibility. And I think it, it speaks to the sort of whack-a-mole problem of content moderation in general, which is that you can't just blacklist certain terms. And I think, you know, Facebook has dealt with misinformation issues for so long and it will be the first to say, like, you can't just not let people search for certain things because they become political and they become uh, tied up in identity and they're sort of sensitive. But um, I think Pinterest has a sort of maybe different 
different stance on this. I know you interviewed Ben Silberman, the CEO, um, last year, and he had something interesting to say about that. Yeah, and it wasn't even, when I asked him about content mod- moderation, it wasn't about, about a specific problem or topic that they were dealing with. It was just, tell me about your approach to content moderation within the broader context of everybody's talking about this right now, especially with disinformation existing on Facebook. Um, and he said that he thinks Pinterest is a little bit different from the other big platforms because the nature of the platform is inherently different. It's super visual. They don't allow a place for, like, long unwieldy captions to happen or um, like crazy screeds from people. And he said, our value is not as a place where people discuss the news. It's not supposed to be a platform for discussion. It's supposed to give inspiration. So at the time, he told me, our terms of service do not allow nudity or quote unquote harmful inspiration. And we think of our job as a service to recommend things that people are likely to enjoy. So at that point, Pinterest is essentially making the, the call like, we think this is harmful, harmful, and if we think this is harmful, we're taking it off. And it's really a reminder that the platforms don't have a responsibility to not only publish everything, but also promote it. And I think people often forget that the platforms have a tremendous ability to sort of inter- interface with what you see, not by banning content. They can do that in extreme cases, but in less extreme cases, by simply not promoting it. Um, the difference between surfacing it so that you see it proactively versus banning it is a really important one and one that um, when Lauren and I were both at Recode, I was part of their hack harassment initiative that um, spurred out of Gamergate. And you know, one of the things that I was always pushing for is this idea that you use your algorithms for all sorts of things. You know, in general, the biggest push is to drive engagement. And they have very powerful tools to surface the content that's most likely to drive engagement. And in some cases, that's actually what does promote the borderline content is it is engaging. Um, but I think they can use these algorithms to sort of downrank questionable content. And we're starting to see both Twitter and Facebook add that at least as one tool. And critics say that's shadow banning or evil. But again, I think it's a really sensible approach to things that approach but don't go over the lines of terms of service. And I think at an underlying level, for some people, there's a little bit of confusion always it exists around what's public what, and therefore what's public speech versus what is private and what is private speech. Like a company is allowed to establish its terms of service and say this is what we want on our platform and this is what we don't want on our platform. And they draw lines all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. most of these platforms ban nudity. There's mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. nudity is more free speech than some of the things that people always criticize as you're not allowing free speech. Free speech actually applies really, and everyone knows, only to the government banning certain types right. of speech. You know, I definitely appreciate and understand that um, these these companies don't want to be the police of the world, and they don't want to feel like they're limiting. But once you have guideposts, and they do, um, I think there is a lot of power in this. And we've seen the implications of not having these guides. And I think, you know, the election example is the most extreme, but I think if you look at, you know, whether it's the anti-vaxxers or um, hate speech, harassment, these things are viral. They do feed on each other. And I think all the platforms are waking up to some sense of responsibility, a lot of criticism that they're still not going far enough, but at least they're no longer acting like the only two options are to ban it or to fully promote it. Mm Because that was a sort of ludicrous distinction that was made for years. Well, in other news, yes, Samsung. There, yes, there was a big Samsung event this week. Galaxies. Let's talk about it. 
Well, I'm very excited that Ina is in the room with us, and I'm going to give her a proper introduction now. She is the chief technology correspondent for Axios and pens their daily tech newsletter called Login, which I recommend you subscribe to if you have not yet. It's fantastic. And prior to Axios, Ina worked for Recode and All Things D, where she and I happened to work together for years. She also worked for CNET earlier in her career, and she has tracked the mobile industry for, for many years now. Ina, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm glad you're here today because I, <laughs> I almost tweeted this, but I decided to save it for you. I'm still signed up for Google alerts for the phrase all things D, which I must have signed up for, I mean, you know, eight or nine years ago now. And I still get them. But now what I get is Google alerts every time someone uses the phrase all things whatever in a headline. So today I think I got about seven of them. And let me see if I can pull some of them up for you because they were really good. One was like all things olives. Um, <laughs> Oh, our sister site. Yeah, our, our sister site, All Things Olives, is reports on uh, like Uber for olives. Basically, if you're really if you're really into that sort of thing. Wait, on Uber demand for olives? No, I just made that up, but that would be amazing. Yeah, I was it? gonna say funded. Let's see. Totally. Oh, I'm actually gonna do a search for this now live on the show. Meanwhile, we're both ordering our meal kit for tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's just and I will olives. be drinking martinis. <laughs> this is taking so long. All right, I give up. I give up. I can't find it. But it was like all things olives, all things God, all things considered, all things like I I get the best ones. Um, Anyway, I'm really excited that you're here and I'm really excited that you're here to talk about Samsung because you and I. All things Samsung. All things Samsung because we've talked about Samsung a lot before you and I. Like I remember on an old podcast we talked about exploding batteries. We did. And we're on to. uh, Happier, happier times, hopefully. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so so you two were both at the event that Samsung had this week. This is um, the annual Samsung Unpacked event, and a very special one because it was the tenth birthday of the Galaxy line. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about what that's like. Like, set the scene for us about what you're walking into, what the production is like. Well, first of all, unpacked is probably the least apt term because you start out packed with (laughs) other journalists. Like this is a Samsung event. What makes it a Samsung event is at some point you have to be like being bumped with video gear and backpacks and, uh, you know, getting really up close and personal with a bunch of journalists from all over the world. And there was no exception this year. Um, I was asked to hold the gear for an Israeli TV crew, and then they interviewed me, <laughs> and then they asked me what I did for a living after they interviewed me. Uh, of course, did you I told say them you worked for Samsung? I did, um, just jokingly. Um, but it was fun, so I did Israeli TV. Um, but you know, they like these big venues um, and a big show. Um, I actually thought the production values this year were some of their best. They had this really cool stage uh, where there was a video wall behind them, but it like went onto the catwalk, onto the floor, and onto the ceiling. It was it was really something. Um, you know, is that like is that like a hint at their their play with folding phones? Like they have like a screen that's kind of curved <laughs> Ooh, in I the background of the that. stage. You know, I don't know. It's just the thing now is to extend it. Remember uh, at um, CES this year, LG had this amazing video wall uh, that went like up and curved around. So I think the curves and stuff is just kind of hip, you know. Screens are, are old, you know. <laughs> Surround video is the thing. Um, so, you know, they have this thing. They have... You know, really good production, but yet there's no star at a Samsung event. Um, sometimes they bring one in, but that hasn't worked too well for them either in past years. One year they did a Rockettes thing that also didn't work well. So they've stuck to, they've tried not to be so creative. Um, but what what's sort of odd is there's really no 
There's no like big Samsung executive that everyone's dying to see. So the products are kind of what people are there for, and yet there's all this song and dance around their launches that I always find interesting. What I found interesting is that they, so first of all, they led with the folding phone. They mm -hmm. showed off five different phones yesterday, or they at least talked about five different versions of phones. And it, rather than go with the Galaxy S10, which is the flagship that everybody was there for, they led with the folding phone. And I think that signaled that even they realized that the you know the flagship phone market is like not you know the launches aren't as exciting as they once were. And so they led with the truly innovative, crazy thing that's not shipping yet. Um, but to Ina's point, it was Justin Dennison on stage who showed it off, and Justin Dennison is like. You know, one of their top executives, but it's not somebody like that. I think people, you know, I don't know, talk about in this the same like mythical proportions as as like even Tim Cook at this point. Um, I was going to say Steve Jobs, but like that's totally different. And um, but what's interesting is that Justin himself did not have the folding phone in his hands. Instead, they were showing demos of it. These you know initially slickly produced videos um, on the giant screen behind him, and then they cut to a live video feed of someone else from Samsung sort of sitting in the corner of the room, um, who I didn't even realize was physically there at first. Like I was just looking up at the screen and he was demoing it. So they did hands on over the shoulder of him demoing it. But like at no point was Justin Dennison standing on stage with this folding phone, which I thought was really interesting. So we really only saw it through the context of a video screen. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's been some discussion today I saw online and I even double checked with Samsung of how real it is. And it's definitely a physical product. They didn't show us just a video of it. Mm -hmm. It's working. Yep. They did not let the reporters get hands on it. They had a ton of hands on time with the 10 series and no, no physical versions of the Samsung Fold for us to play with. Now, it's not shipping till April. That's not that uncommon. I've seen Apple do a similar thing uh, where, uh, you know, and it usually doesn't announce products till they're ready, but I've seen them put behind glass something that they teased but didn't launch. What was weird was this was almost a launch. I mean, they gave dates, pricing, and we'll talk about the pricing. Um, dates, pricing, availability, that sort of thing. Um, so it was kind of a launch, but yeah, we didn't get to get our hands on it. Um, I did, uh, to make up for it, I brought a bunch of visual aids, which I think is great for an audio only <laughs> podcast. For a podcast. Um, so as you can't see. Wait, before we get into these phones, can we just quickly talk about the Fold? Yes. yes. Which we don't have yes. in front of us. Oof. Oh, it's one Oof. of the phones. One, one of, the of the phones, phones is, is angry. <laughs> they were ready to be talking. The phones are like, it's our time to shine. I just wanted to quickly just go over what the Fold actually is, this mythical product that we've been hearing about for what seems like forever. So it, it's called the Galaxy Fold. And the idea is that you have a phone that looks mostly like a normal phone, maybe a little bit chunkier. And then it sort of unfolds to reveal this 7.3 inch screen, which is like the size of a small tablet. And Samsung's whole pitch here is that you're going to use this um, sort of like seamlessly as you watch videos on the train to work and then you're going to fold it up and text your friends. And if you're looking at Google Maps on your phone, you can like unfurl it like a big map or something like that. Um, and it comes at the staggering price of $1,980. That's right. Um, there's I, a lot to unpack. There's there. a lot to unpack. Uh so as a commuter, I will say that I saw this and thought, you know, on, at the event yesterday and thought, um, wow, this is ridiculously expensive, especially when you consider that it's billed. You know, it's it's not using any type of glass because it can't yet. Like that's physically, it's probably something they're working on, but it's like using a polymer. Then I also thought as a commuter, oh, I'd really like that. 
I would love to have this like Ooh. folding device in my pocket that when I just feel like texting, I just text or I shoot a note or maybe I open a music app. And then when I actually feel like I need to read or do like a little bit something a little bit more, um, I don't know, involved, I would unfold it. Perhaps I like the idea of like being that person on the train who's the early adopter too, who's like, look at my folding phone, which is like a weird thing to say. I, I mean, that's going to be the market. That's I mean, the amazing. market yeah. is going to be people who want to have a conversation piece. And the interesting thing is this market has existed. I was talking with my editors yesterday. They're like, who's going to buy it? I'm like, look, there is this market. I mean, we covered this weird Nokia spinoff called Virtu that was basically several thousand dollar phones. And basically... You know, they had diamonds and all sorts of crazy stuff. But basically, it was so you can send the message, I have the coolest phone. You know, think of the luxury watch market. Luxury watches tell the same time as, you know, Timex watches. Um, it's just, it's that thing. The weird thing about technology and luxury for me has always been technology gets outdated really quick. Mm -hmm. So I've never been a big, like... You can have a Rolex. My dad has lots of Rolexes. You can, or one Rolex, I guess. Uh, you can have Rolexes for a really long time, um, whereas these things don't last. And the biggest question mark I have is, is this really going to be that luxury piece? Because I'm not convinced that the novelty of it doesn't wear off. And maybe when these get mainstream, um, it will be more of interest. But I'm not sure it's cool enough to justify that price tag. I actually think there is a market for a cool enough device. I think the hardest part is gonna be them actually convincing consumers and consumers really deciding that it is that cool. Mm -hmm. Ariel, would you get one? Oh, I mean, I'm not a fancy person like you are, Lauren. Uh, so fancy. I also bike to work, so the commuting pitch doesn't really work on me. I don't know, I'm, I'm very intrigued by it, but I think, um, Ina's right that like we kind of have to wait and see like what it feels like, if it looks luxe, if it sort of has that app experience that feels very seamless and, and luxurious and like it, it's adding more efficiency to your life. I don't know. These things all remain to be seen, but I think uh, my, my budget says no. <laughs> what about you, Ina? Would you get it? No, I mean, you know, like a lot of tech writer types, I'm like, sure, I can't wait to play around with it. Um, and I, you know, I'm carry a million phones and, you know, could this replace two of them? You know, maybe. Um, I'm just not convinced. First of all, that when it's closed, that 4.6 inch, you've got a chunky small phone, small screen phone mm -hmm. when it's closed. Um, so there's a lot of compromises in the closed position. And when it's opened, it's big, but 7.3, I mean, how big is that S10 Plus? It's, you know, pretty mm -hmm. big. It's obviously not nearly as big, but I'm, I'm not convinced that's what I really want. And, you know, I wish them luck. And I, I think, you know, it's easy to pick on the first device in a category too. These things tend to only get better. I wouldn't be surprised if two or three years from now, a foldable doesn't cost, you know, significantly more than a high-end phone. And there's more uses and it's smoother. And you got to start somewhere. Um, but I'm sort of reminded of those. Remember those curved screen devices? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Galaxy Round and uh, LG Flex. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the idea was this curved screen. And the reason they did it was not because there was a big market for it. That's what they could do. That's how much flex they could get was a tiny bit of curve. And so they were like, let's do it because we got to fund the R&D that's going to get us someday to what we all want, which is a phone we can really fold up and stick in our pocket, you know, the sort of newspaper that unfolds, that sort of thing. And we're still not there. I mean, this is cooler. I think it has more use. 
Um, I did bring, to give you a sense of it, um, I did bring a device, as, as you can all not see. Uh, this is from a couple years ago. It's ZTE's Axon M. Oof. And it was two screens. Um, you know, and the idea was somewhat similar. So different technology, two separate screens. There was a bezel in the middle. So, you know. Just to describe it really quickly, it, it unfolds almost the way a sidekick did, where there's like a, I mean, it looks much different than a sidekick, but if you can imagine the sort of hinge with a completely separate screen that sort of folds back and forth. So the back and the front uh, are two separate screens that unfold together to form something. Now this wasn't clearly as refined, it wasn't a single screen, um, but it was sort of a play on the same thing and they were going after the same market, making the same pitch, albeit at a third of the price. So this sold for about 750, um, even though it had two screens. I don't believe it sold particularly well. Handing it to I'm Lauren so she can yeah. uh, play with it. And um, you, I mean, the seam when you open it and you're using it as uh, side by side display, the seam is really obvious. It was not so obvious on the Galaxy Fold that we saw on stage yesterday. But this is, I mean, yeah, it's essentially the same concept. And the apps actually go full screen. They did. When they, okay, so you had the choice of two side by side mm -hmm. apps or one uh, running full screen. It's running Android. Um, it did boot up this morning. I notice it's not on at the moment. I think it's Still just works. turned off. How do you close um, it? I feel like I'm going to break it. Probably this time. Bending it the We're wrong way. We're talking about its, uh, its competitor. It feels a little nervous. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a Clamming little, Clamming up. You know. And durability is a real thing with these kinds of phones, too, more so even than our precious glass labs that we already have because you're relying on this hinge to do something in case you all can't hear it. It has a very physical yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> it has that a physical hinge. hinge a lot. You know, um, you'd have want it to last for, like, hundreds of thousands of times, I imagine. And I know Samsung's done a lot of testing mm -hmm. around that. Samsung uh, stuck a battery in each side, too, to give it more battery life. Which is um, important because if you have double or triple the screen, you have double or triple the battery suck to power your screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, depending on the screen technology and the number of apps you're running, too. What other phones do you have here? Let's go um, through them. So I brought another phone uh, that I thought about a lot, actually, when the S10 came out. Um, because some of the features that are on the S10 that I think are going to be the things that people talk about actually have been on a phone that I've been carrying since January, uh, which is the Huawei Mate 20. Mm. Um, so this is a device that isn't sold in the U.S. because Huawei doesn't really get to sell here. Um, so most people will never get it, which is why I'm excited a lot of the features are coming here. But um, if you look at the two side by side, which of course nobody here can do, um, but <laughs> I think Lauren, are, they're pretty similar. They both have the under display fingerprint reader, mm -hmm. um, which I think people will really like. Yeah, it's um, very cool. Uh, Samsung should work a little better because it's using ultrasonic technology. Um, the other thing I love about the Huawei uh, Mate is the wide angle lens. So like the Samsung Galaxy S10 Plus and S10, it has three cameras on the rear. So it's got the zoom, the 2x that we've kind of gotten used to, the standard, but then this ultra wide, which when you're out in nature or in a city, I have some photos from London where I got this, that it's just stunning. I mean, it really is, you're gonna like be like, oh my God, I definitely want my next phone to have this. Mm -hmm. um, so those were two. And then the other is this reverse wireless charging, which means that in addition to the fact you can charge your phone wirelessly, you can also use your phone to wirelessly charge another device. So the one Samsung most wants you to do is to charge your Galaxy Buds earbuds, uh, so you can put the case on the back. You can also put another Samsung Galaxy. And as a bunch of reviewers found out yesterday, and this is also true with the Huawei, you can also charge your iPhone. Um, <laughs> 
Which, you know, since if you're one of those rare people that carry a bunch of phones, or even if you're at your friend's house and they have a full battery, you're at a concert, yours is almost dead, it's a really nice in-the-pinch feature. So those three things are all on the Huawei Mate and are all features on the Galaxy S10 that aren't new because clearly they're on this thing. But I think most Americans won't have gotten a peek at any of these, and they're all really useful features. Uh, What did you think of the Samsung Galaxy S10e, which... My understanding is the first time that Samsung has announced a quote-unquote cheaper model with the flagship launch. Um, and it's supposed to be aimed at people, like, all right, it's $750, right? And that's with a base storage of 128 gigabytes, which is not a terrible amount of base storage. Um, but it's supposed to be for people who are seeing these $1,000 price points on phones right now and going, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. But um, also but smaller screens, which small, is interesting. Yeah, because right. they're sort of taking the iPhone SE, which is the smaller screen, with sort of the pricing and features of the iPhone XR, um, which is also at 750-ish, I think, um, but it has a really big screen and they made their trade-offs elsewhere in screen technology mm-hmm. and cameras and a few other areas. Um, but Apple chose to go with a really big screen on its sort of budget, again, in quotes, how you can call a $750 phone budget. That's crazy. And that market has been a tough one because I think most people, when they pay most of the price of a flagship, would rather go a little bit further and really buy the flagship. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Tenny doesn't do very well, particularly in developed markets like the U.S. I think everyone thinks they want it, and then when the time comes and it's $27 a month or $29 a month, they buy up. And I like smaller phones. Uh, in the Pixel, for example, I always love the Pixel more than the Pixel XL. Uh, It just feels like the right size for me. It seems to me like it could be part of an effort to keep people from just buying the older models at a steep discount when the new ones come out. Because as soon as, you know, a new iPhone XS or a new Galaxy S10 comes out, there is an entire market of people who just look straight to the last year's models and they go, great, I can get this for hundreds of dollars less. And you know what? They're still getting pretty freaking great technology in in a phone. Um, So it seems to me like... Uh, the more skews that smartphone vendors try to push, the more they're just saying, like, it's like a head fake. It's like, look over here. No, you can pay $750 and get this new thing, right? And then there are some elements of those models that happen to have new technology, like a new camera lens or a new something. Um, Although the S10e, the Galaxy S10e, does not have the in-display fingerprint sensor and it does not have the same number of camera lenses. It also doesn't have the same amount of RAM, right? So you're making some sacrifices here and there. Yeah, I mean, for me, it it just doesn't have enough. It takes away a few of the things that would make me excited about the Galaxy 10. I do think it appeals to the the market, which is plenty of the market, that wants a good enough smartphone and doesn't want to spend a fortune. The problem is once you take a few things away, there's so many options. I mean, that market is so competitive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you could probably get more bang for your buck. At $750, that might be the low end of Apple and Samsung, but it's the high end of most other phone makers' uh, lineups. Yeah, Um, that's a great point. Motorola makes great phones for, for, Mm -hmm. you know, a a much lower price. Uh, OnePlus, Xiaomi, although, again... uh, We don't get the benefit of Xiaomi here in the U.S. Yeah, it's largely in the Chinese market. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Motorola just announced the new G7 line a few weeks ago, and those look pretty darn good. So where do you think this event, I was thinking about this a lot yesterday, fits into the broader context of the smartphone market? Because sales slowed for the first time in 2018, in 10 years since we all started using smartphones. Um, And there's a lot of discussion right now as to whether or not the market is mature or saturated. And obviously the vendors know this. 
Um, but they've got to put out phones. So, like, wh- when you look at all the phones from yesterday, where do they sort of fit in the context of that? You know, I think the foldable is early and, you know, just trying to, one, figure out where phones are going next, get people excited again. And I think hardware innovation is what gets people viscerally excited. Uh, and we haven't had much. You know, it's been a big slab of glass that's been growing bigger and thinner bezels for a couple of years, which is nice and people like it, but it doesn't, you know, make you jump out of bed and want to buy one of these things. Um, and then, you know, in the flagship series, uh, the S10, I think there's a lot of good features. There's a lot of things in this that are good things, but is it enough to justify the person who's actually on the fence about buying it? Because the person who wants a new phone is going to get a new phone. I'm sure they're going to be happy. They're going to get a way better camera, you know, because unlike the rest of us that are trying out a phone every six months, that's a very narrow group. Most people are getting it every couple of years and you will notice a big improvement. But what you're not seeing is sort of that cycle contracting again. You're seeing it growing. People are keeping their phones longer and that good enough period is increasing. Um, And I think there wasn't probably a dramatic shift here. Again, there's plenty of nice features, but I don't think they're going to combat with this just like everyone's struggling to, what's going to make the person upgrade two years versus, you know, two and a half years, particularly when they're now financing that device. And in theory, you know, once you've paid off your device, you should notice that monthly bill go down. Now, some of the carriers actually don't don't necessarily do this, uh, um, especially if you're leasing your device. Um, but, you know, in general, you've paid off your device. You could theoretically save a bunch of money uh, but, you know, I think most people are eventually going to trade in their phone if for no other reason than the battery stops being as good. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when they trade in their phone, well, then the technology is there. Then maybe it has the 5G modem or the in-display fingerprint sensor. 5G, by the way, we didn't even get to yeah, talk about that yet. So there's that. a model, uh, the S10, S10 5G, I guess it's called. And that is also not shipping until a little bit later this year. Did they announce pricing on this? They didn't announce. They did not they, announce They did not, pricing. right. Okay, they, I was not mistaken on that. So no. it's still Which TBD. fine because this phone is basically <laughs> made up. <laughs> you know, or, we didn't get is, to see it. Which is to say not made up, but the, the promise of a phone that runs on 5G is, as of now, something you can't really cash in on. But what's interesting here is, and I do think Samsung will get some benefit from this, is these carriers are all launching 5G in at least a few cities this year, and they're going to want to push it. Once they turn on 5G in that city, they're going to want to sell something. And so Samsung has positioned themselves to be the thing when you walk into that carrier store in Sacramento or Kansas City or whatever markets are getting 5G first, they're not going to try and sell you an iPhone because the iPhone's not going to work on 5G this year's iPhone probably won't work. You'll probably have to wait till next year. So Samsung does have a chance, and this is often the case with a new generation of wireless that Apple's behind. So there is this opportunity, and again, Samsung's really early, but we'll see others. We'll see LG and others also deliver 5G devices. So that's the opportunity, is it's not huge numbers, but showing we're first with this. They'll be able to say Apple's following when they finally do come out with it. But we're talking a few cities, you know, I, I think it'll be great in those cities. Um, this phone is huge, it's by huge. the way. It's huge. It's the biggest one that bigger. they showed yesterday and has the biggest battery of all the devices they showed yesterday. Which it's going to need if it's constantly searching for a 5G network that <laughs> may or may not exist. <laughs> so, I mean, it does notice when it has 5G and when it doesn't. And it's the state-of-the-art 4G when it doesn't. So if you're in the 99% of the country that doesn't have 5G, it's not like it'll be trying to do 5G the whole time. 
Um, and it is, you know, the flagship model. So you are getting the latest technology. I don't know how many people remember the Thunderbolt, one of the first 4G phones for Verizon, but it got like terrible battery life, like an hour and a half. I mean, it was ridiculous. Basically, it had just enough battery life to say, I'm on 4G, but my battery's dying. Um, so, you know, they really wanted that not to be the case with 5G. And all the folks have promised that the phones you buy will actually be good phones that you'd want to own, not chunky bricks that get no battery life. Um, but I don't think this has huge implications beyond if you're in one of those cities with 5G, they're going to hold this up and say this is the phone you want. Final question. You are locked in this room accidentally after we finish this podcast and you can only use one virtual assistant to try to get you out. Siri or Bixby, which one do you use? Ooh. I'm going to I'm gonna die lonely. <laughs> Neither of those are going to help me. Um, you know, Bixby's going to start the wash. Siri's going <laughs> to tell me, you know, what the weather is outside. Neither of them are going to do anything to doesn't, help me. Doesn't Bixby play a little nicer with Google Assistant, though? Mm, I don't know about that. I don't know because I've rarely used Bixby. Uh, I mean, I I've used like it on the Note 9. I don't know. I, my instinct is that Bixby would know how to call for help to another assistant. <laughs> and then the other assistant, like Google Assistant, could maybe like get you out of a pinch where a Siri would be like, hmm, I found some answers for that on the web. <laughs> Searching the web for trapped in a room. Yeah. Uh, I would not be ready to uh, trust my life to either. So I'd probably take whichever phone's going to give me a couple more hours of Pokemon and then call it a day. <laughs> that sounds good. Should we go into recommendations? Yes. Ina, would you like to do the honors of sharing your recommendation first? I would love to, and I thought I'd do a cool, hip movie, but I'm the parent of a six-year-old, so the only movies I've seen uh, in the theater are six-year-old movies, but I have two uh, that I've seen in recent weeks, and I really like them both, so Lego Movie 2, and last night uh, Comcast had a screening of How to Train Your Dragon, the third one and final one in the trilogy. Uh, both were really fun. Both made me not hate being the parent of a six-year-old. And uh, the best part was our six-year-old Harvey sat through the entirety of both. And those were the first two movies where he'd sat in the theater. We hadn't had to go in the middle of it at all. Um, and it was really neat. It was neat to see it through his eyes. And they were both the kind of movies that as an adult you could appreciate. So I recommend both. Seems like Harvey sitting through them is like the highest praise you could possibly give to a film. Yeah. <laughs> like the, your six-year-old will sit through it. Yeah. The San Francisco Chronicle has these reviews of the happy guy and he's either like standing up applauding. Mine is just, is the six-year-old in the seat? And the answer was yes. So. <laughs> Sounds excellent. Ariel, what's yours? Um, I would like to recommend an app. Um, please do not laugh, but it is an app for astrology. It's called CoStar, and it's sort of like a social network build, built around astrological profiles of you and your friends. So you uh, make a profile, you enter your birthday, but also your birth time and your birth city so that the app can populate your entire natal chart. And then it uses AI to give you these personalized horoscopes that take into account not just your sun sign, but also your moon sign and your rising sign. Um, I'm, I'm speaking about this in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way because I think a lot of people think astrology is a joke and whether or not you think that's true, I still think you should get this app because it's an amazing way to not just check in on what your friends are up to and like maybe why they're being a little bit cranky today because, you know, like maybe their Saturn is in Aquarius and the planets are just like not aligning in a way for them to be cooperative. Um, but it's also a great way to remember your friend's birthdays, which is something I have such a hard time with in the age of 
delete Facebook. Um, I, I've, I felt really bad actually this past year already in how many birthdays I've, I've missed from my friends that I normally would have been way on top of because Facebook would have reminded me. Um, and I feel really bad when someone close to me has a birthday that I, you know, don't acknowledge for weeks. Yeah, so. you totally lost me at astrology and I was like, wah, 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 <laughs> until you pointed out, remember your friend's birthday? Remember your birthday. And it's like, oh yeah, I haven't gotten, I haven't actually deleted Facebook yet, but if I did, that would definitely be the one thing I'd be terrible at. Right, and you probably, I mean, you probably don't go on often enough these days to, to really keep up with the birthdays. I, that's, I think I still have my calendar synchronized or um, something so that I do get reminders. Yeah. That was actually one thing to deviate from recommendations. The one thing we didn't talk about. So Facebook uh, on the new Samsung, there's an Instagram mode. And that's what I right. thought was super interesting is that was an example of Facebook partnering with the hardware maker, deep integration in a way that people like. I think people like these integrations. But this is the same kind of thing that last year people were like, oh my God, Facebook is giving a hardware maker all this data and a hardware maker has access to my Facebook information. Yeah, that's how you build products jointly. Sorry. But then you just put it right in front of their faces, like use Instagram through your Samsung phone and people are like, yes, yes, I will do that. Yeah, also it's like, Instagram, that's different than Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that app sounds cool. It's called CoStar, you CoStar said? CoStar Astrology. It's CoStar uh, Astrology. free, and mm-hmm. if you make an account, feel free to add me. I'm at Part Esoteric. And when's your birthday? My birthday is <laughs> May 11th. I'm a Taurus son. Anyway, Lauren, what's your mm-hmm. recommendation? Uh, I would like to do a follow-up to last week's recommendation first, which is last week I recommended Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, and I have continued to read it, and I'm I've continued to enjoy it, and that's all I'd like to say about that. Um, because sometimes I recommend books like when I haven't finished them, and then I worry that maybe I've made a poor recommendation. This one's excellent. Uh, this week, I would like to recommend Purple Carrot. I have tried a lot of box services over the years, everything from Birchbox to Naturebox to Plated to Blue Apron. I've been a Blue Apron subscriber for many years. Um, I even rent my clothes. I, uh, you know, so I get deliveries of that. I honestly don't know how some of these these services stay in business. You uh, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, I am single handedly responsible. If any of you would like to sponsor this podcast, please come to me because we're already talking about it. Uh, but no, I mean, really, like, I don't know how some of their business models are sustainable, and especially just in the age of Amazon dominating everything, it always feels like they're just one step away from Amazon, either copying their service outright or buying them. But Purple Carrot is the vegan meal kit service, which I started using because I got one of those coupons around the holidays, and I was like, let me try it. And it is slightly more expensive than when I was paying for Blue Apron, but so far, I have really liked the meals, and I think I'm going to stay with it. What about All Things Olives? Try <laughs> that out. I want you to try that well, out. I think olives are vegan, year. so I think that can work in the, as part of this system. By the way, I'm not vegan, uh, but it's one of those things that I just... Um, you know, and I think like I had this impression of, well, because it's all vegetable based, you must just you must finish eating and still be hungry or something. I don't know. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed these meal kits. And I know I'm a little bit late to the purple carrot thing. And um, yeah, I don't even think Mark Bittman's there anymore, who was like the New York Times columnist who joined. Anyway, um, but it's great. And I recommend that if you're looking for a vegan meal kit service, give it a try. That sounds fabulous. Mm-hmm. Ina, how can people find you on Twitter? Um, well, on Twitter, I'm at Ina Freed, and my free daily newsletter login is super easy. You just go to getlogin.axios.com, put in your email address, and I'll be hiding in your inbox every Monday through Friday. Hiding? That doesn't sound creepy. <laughs> Not creepy at all. <laughs> 
exciting. And Ariel, where can people find you? I am at Pardesoteric on Twitter and on CoStar Astrology. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I am Lauren Good with an E at the end on Twitter. Or you can just tweet to all of us at, at Gadget Lab, which is Wired's Gadget Lab account. We'll be back next week. And Mike will be here too. And we'll have more goodness from the Gadget Lab. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to all this construction too. We just heard some weird. Should we? There's like we construction. Keep going? Whoa. All right. That's great. Construction during the podcast. What is, I don't know, where is it coming from? I thought doing this out of a dentist's office might be a bad idea. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Reminds me of the root canal scene in West Wing. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.